Good morning, River City, and uh, welcome to church this morning, sort of. Uh, what a great reminder that our worship and praise to the Lord is due to His righteousness, as our call to worship said this morning, His perfection, His worth, and it's not based on our efforts, it's not based on our circumstances. So I don't know today if you're feeling hopeful or hopeless, uh, if you're wrestling with big things, or if you're just plodding away through the, the mundane, um, but I'm glad you're here. Uh, as we've been working our way through this series in Habakkuk and Zephaniah, we've taken some long and hard looks at the difficult realities of our lives. The wickedness, the evil, the injustice, the brokenness, the sin, the idolatry, and the, the things that these Old Testament prophets are seeing all around them resonate with us because we too live in a world that's marred by sin. We groan under the curse that still wages war against the invading kingdom of God. And so today, uh, we'll move from Habakkuk to Zephaniah. We'll open up the book of Zephaniah. Uh, and Zephaniah is known for, for being, it's known for being one of the least known books in the Bible. Um, this small little minor prophet packs a pretty big punch, however, um, in the life of God's people. Uh, it's written around the same time as Habakkuk. Zephaniah is also looking at the idolatry and the brokenness in the culture, um, looking at God's people and the reality of the coming judgment uh, at the hands of Babylon. He, too, is wondering what the Lord is up to. Uh, and he gets a clear prophetic answer from the Lord. Habakkuk asked the Lord for perspective, for understanding, and for clarity. And Zephaniah, however, is not really asking He's just receiving from God um, what God has to say, exactly what God's going to do to deal with the wickedness and sin that has crept into God's people. It's heavy at times, it's very direct, but it ends very hopeful. And that's important. Um, it, it tells us something about how God acts. It gives us a glimpse of how God accomplishes his, his will and how he establishes justice, how he fulfills his promises, how he enables flourishing for his people. Because for us, we, we tend to believe that restoration uh, comes by seeking change to outward circumstances and outward issues. But God's path to restoration, as seen here in Zephaniah, God's path to revival comes through repentance, and he starts at home. He starts in his own people first. So let's read the text together this morning. Zephaniah chapter 1. We're going to read all the way through chapter 2 verse 3. This is the word of the Lord for us today. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of uh, Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the king of Amnon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. In the name of the idolatrous, idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear to Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, 
The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. A wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will, do no, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Chapter 2 Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Amen and amen. Now, a little more context before we, uh, before we unpack this in full. Zephaniah opens with his lineage. Now, we don't know a lot about the man, Zephaniah, but we are told he's the great-grandson of, of Hezekiah, who was a good king. In fact, one of the last good and godly kings in Judah. Now, we don't f- know fully why his family tree is listed, but it is a reminder of how far God's people had descended into sin. Nonetheless, the people have become corrupt and idolatrous, no matter the goodness of Hezekiah. To to borrow the definition of idolatry from from Brad Bigney, uh, we've used this uh, definition before, idolatry is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, our minds, and our affections more than God. Anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. The hearts of God's people had been captured by other delights and other gods. So Zephaniah, a prophet, is warning God's people that because of their idolatry, judgment is coming. Now it's likely that Zephaniah is writing just after the time that Josiah became king in Judah. Now Josiah was young, he was a boy when he was thrust into the throne, um, he was, but he was a good king. And in fact, he was the last good king that Judah had. Josiah is the one who rediscovered the law of God that had been forgotten and neglected, and he quickly cleaned house in the temples and amongst God's people. Um, He removed objects of idol worship that had been uh, left up, that had been used and practiced, that had crept into the people's worship, and he called the people 
back to the Lord. And so Zephaniah's prophecy likely comes on the heels of a lot of those reforms. And even though the king was making needed changes, Josiah was doing the things necessary to bring the people back. The hearts of the people were often slower to change, which highlights for us that the the path to restoration and holiness does not come necessarily as a result of external changes in policy, although they might be good and necessary, but through changed hearts. The path to restoration, the path to revival begins with repentance, and it begins at home. Revival comes through repentance of God's own people. So we'll look at this text in two parts. Part one is is Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, where we're looking at God's covenant relationship with his people, how God's covenant with his people shows up in this kind of spiral of judgment. And we'll look at that here in a second. And the second part is the the first three verses of Zephaniah chapter 2, where there's this call to repentance. So we're going to look at one, God's covenant relationship with his people, and two, this call to repentance. So let's look at the first uh, part, Zephaniah chapter 1, God's covenant relationship with his people. Now we've talked about this before, but, but covenants have blessings and curses. They have promises and punishments. Uh, some of the promises and the blessings that flow out of God's covenant relationship with his people, um, that they will be his people, um, that they will have a place, that they will uh, have a king and be part of a kingdom, and that, that, that he's blessed them so that they'll be a blessing to other nations. These are some of the elements of of the covenant of God with his people. Um, and with that, you know, when they uphold their end of the covenant, those promises come to bear fruit. Um, they have a place. They're secure in their place. Their kings are righteous. Their kingdom is prosperous. Um, they are a blessing to the other nations. And when they fail to uphold their end of the covenants, curses come. The discipline comes. The judgment comes. And even in those, there's always the preservation of a remnant who will ultimately inherit the promises because God's promises are good. And so Zephaniah is a prophet of judgment for a broken covenant. See, the Lord isn't just fed up one day and just decides to punish Judah randomly. Psalm 33 verse 4 reminds us that the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. The Lord is not capricious. The Lord is not irrational, but very intentional and very purposeful and righteous and right. And it's because the Lord has made a covenant with his people that he holds them to the standards that are outlined. The Lord recalls this covenant relationship as he outlines his discipline through Zephaniah. Look at chapter uh, ch- chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. There's almost this reversal of creation going on. Uh, you have uh, sweeping away or wiping away of men, all men, uh, all humanity, beasts, birds, fish, even down to the, they'll be swept away with the rubble of the earth. There's this backwards action. Creation is working backwards where the earth was created and then the fish and the birds and the beasts and then humans made in God's image. And almost like the the, the curse, the judgment is coming as a reversal of creation with first with humanity and then with the beasts of the field and then the birds of the air, then the fish of the sea. And in fact, everything will just get swept up with the dust of the earth. There's this sweeping away or wiping away. Look at verse 3, cutting off mankind from the face of the earth. It has echoes of God's words to Noah in Genesis 6, that he was going to wipe man off the face of the earth. It has language that's similar to uh, the covenant that God made with Noah post-flood in Genesis chapter 
8, he said, uh, God told Noah he wouldn't again wipe humanity off the face of the earth, as it says in Genesis 8.22, as long as the earth remains. So Zephaniah is looking at and hearing this, this judgment from the Lord saying, this is it. The earth is, no, is going to be no longer because I believe that God is serious in his promise, in his judgment to wipe the evil from the face of the earth. Now we'll look at it again here in a minute, but it's clear that Zephaniah sees this day of the Lord as a significant and final resolution to his judgment. So cutting off the people, look at verses 4 through 7. He takes the, the cosmic approach to all creation and then kind of boils it down and says, now, I'm, now the Lord is speaking specifically to Judah and Jerusalem. There's covenant language here in verses 4 through 7 of cutting off the people. It moves from judgment over creation to judgment of Judah. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. Now when you read that phrase, stretched out hand, it speaks to intentional, purposeful, obvious intervention. We read that Aaron and Moses stretched out their hands in Exodus 8 and 9 and 10 as the Lord brought plagues and pestilence against Pharaoh. And in Exodus 14, Moses stretched out his hand and the Red Sea parted. And he stretched out his hand again and the sea swallowed up the pursuing armies of Egypt. So this picture here of a stretched out hand is intentional and purposeful action. In this case, it's intentional and purposeful action of the Lord against Judah. Let's continue. He says, and he will cut off the remnant of Baal. Baal is a, is a kind of a royal lord title. Um, used for pagan gods. In this case, um, the pagan uh, pagan fertility gods that the Canaanites would worship. Um, the worship of Baal had crept into the worship practices of God's people. And there were also those who worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. We see those referenced here of those who go up on their roofs and, and, and pray in that way, praying to the stars, praying to the, the sun and the moon. The god Milcom, also called Moloch, is a, a god of war, uh, and worship of him was associated with child sacrifice. There's all these pagan gods, and, are, and their worship is intermingled in the worship of God, the true God. There are those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, verse 5 says. And the Lord says, this can't happen. You can't worship the Lord God and worship Baal or Moloch or any other God. See, God's people had become far too comfortable adapting the worship of false gods and mixing it with their worship of the Lord. So even the remnants of this false religion and false worship that exist in Judah, like an infection, need to be cleaned all the way out. You need to get all the infected flesh, otherwise the wound will never heal. That's the picture here of the getting rid of the remnant of this false worship. And then in verse 7, Zephaniah says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Here again, you get this covenant language. The Lord has prepared the sacrifice. He's provided for the sacrifice just like he did with Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 2 or earlier in Genesis when it was the Lord who separated the animals and laid them down so that Abraham and the presence of God would pass through them as a way to consecrate their covenant relationship. The prophets of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel all reference the Lord is the one preparing a sacrifice as he carries out his judgments on the nations. The Lord is the one preparing the sacrifice. The Lord is the one who has consecrated. He has prepared 
his guests, his people. This is a reminder that the Lord is aiming right at Judah. He's aiming right at his own people because they have broken their covenant with the Lord and he's bringing about his judgment. Let's keep going. Verse 8, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, um, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. See, now here the judgment gets even more specific. It's cosmic and all creation, and it's specific to Judah. Uh, And now it gets even more specific to people in Judah, leaders in Judah, and specific literal places in Jerusalem. This is specific um, people and places. The consequences of this are all consuming, verses 8 through 13. The officials, it says, and the king's sons. These are the religious and political leaders of Judah, those who are expected to lead with honor and integrity, expected to fear the Lord, expected to obey his commands, lead the people to do the same, and their track record over these last generations is bad. Uh, he goes on, all those who array themselves in foreign attire. This is likely a reference to the, to the religious attire that many would wear around Jerusalem. Uh, King Solomon, 300 years previous had brought many wives from many nations to Jerusalem. And with them, he made provisions for them to worship their own gods. In fact, there was a hill across from the temple set up for idol worship. And this lingered in Jerusalem for generations. Verses 10 through 13, On that day, declares the Lord. See, we have this systemic dismantling of people and places in Jerusalem. What was once a strong and secure place will be exposed. There will be no hiding. There will be no security, no comfort in your homes, no comfort in your hard work. The complacent in Jerusalem, the Lord is coming for you. That's basically what's happening as we work our way through verses 10 through 13. And this is language we typically see in God's response to other nations. We read it in Habakkuk, right? His response to Babylon, like, don't worry, your judgment is coming. But here, the Lord is outlining direct and decisive judgment at his own people. And Zephaniah sees it all centering around, verse 14, the great day of the Lord. This is the the kind of the countdown to judgment that Zephaniah is, is looking at. One of the recurring themes in the book of Zephaniah is this day of the Lord. And what Zephaniah appears to be talking about is a day of judgment. Uh, the American artist uh, John Martin painted this painting called The Great Day of His Wrath, somewhere between 1851 and 1853. It should be up on the screen. And I think it's just a remarkable piece of work. I really like it as a, just as a, as a piece of art. But, but take a look at it while I read Zephaniah's description of this day of wrath, verses 15 and 16. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. When Zephaniah looks down the corridor of time, he sees Armageddon, he sees judgment, he sees the end of all things, he sees judgment day. And with the coming destruction of Babylon. From his perspective, he says, this is it. It's happening. Now, if he could see beyond Babylon's coming, he would see that while Babylon is terrible and what is coming is devastating, the Lord isn't done yet. This happens a lot to us when we're reading and studying the Old Testament prophets. 
They're often speaking of really specific things that happen in history, and they're foreshadowing things to come in the future. I made this graphic, and it's not very good, um, because I made it myself, but, but take a look at it. Habakkuk is looking at the coming judgment, down, straight down the corridor of time. Dark skies and distress, and he can only see what's in front of him in the line of time. But beyond that, beyond what he can see, there is a day of the Lord to come. It's a, it's a both and. There is a day of the Lord that absolutely corresponds to the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. And just a few hundred years after Zephaniah, Nebuchadnezzar will come with all the might of Babylon and will destroy the temple in Jerusalem. We know that historically happens just a few hundred years after Zephaniah. And we also know, as we read all of Scripture and we see this grand story unfolding, that there is a day of the Lord when the dead in Christ shall rise, when the heavens will break open and the Lord Jesus will descend just as he promised. Oh, what a great and terrible day of the Lord that will be. So save that. Hang on to that. Stick that in your pocket. This day of the Lord is something, is a theme that's going to be coming up over and over again in the coming weeks. But here's what we need to see here is that with all the wickedness and all the idolatry and all the false worship and putting trust in other things, hearts set on and love for created things over the creator, the first thing the Lord does is address the hearts of his own people. He doesn't address Babylon. He doesn't address Assyria. He doesn't address other nations. I mean, he'll get to them, but that's not where he starts. He starts with his own people and he doesn't give them a pass. Because it wasn't their fault, it was previous generations. It was wicked kings who married pagan wives and brought their worship practices into Jerusalem, into the temple. It wasn't their fault, right? But the Lord's like, no, no, this is your covenant too. You can't have the blessings without the obedience. And so he calls out every man and woman in Judah and says, I'm going after your heart, your affections. I'm calling you back to the covenant that we made. And so the Lord acts rightly according to the covenant with his people and shows them the way back into right relationship through discipline. And that's where we see in chapter 2 this call to repentance. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. Before it all happens, right in front of you, basically, is what he's saying. Verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his commands, who seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. This is repentance language, right? Seek righteousness, which is holiness and obedience. Seek humility. The opposite of pride and arrogance. And he says, perhaps, perhaps you may be hidden and protected on the day of the anger of the Lord. Now, this, this prophetic perhaps, that word perhaps, isn't a, if you do the right thing, then I will not do all of what I said I will do in chapter 1. No, no, there is still an inevitability to this. It is happening. Judgment is coming. Yet, there is hope. There is room in God's judgment for mercy. And that's important, especially as we understand the, the story of the gospel in and through God's word. Zephaniah is saying, the Lord is doing this, but it hasn't happened yet. You're still breathing. You haven't been wiped off the face of the earth. You haven't been plundered. You are not yet consumed. So I implore you, 
he says, to repent. We read similar language in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. There were some following Jesus who were upset because there were some Jews from Galilee who had been killed and their blood had been mixed with the the pagan sacrificial blood uh, of of, uh, pagan sacrificial worship. And this was offensive to them. It was unclean. It was a disgrace. And so some of the men who were with Jesus asked him, do you think that those who uh, those Galileans were, were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way? And basically, basically they're asking, what was it that caused these men to receive a worse fate? And Jesus says, well, no, it's not because they were worse. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus goes on in verse 4 of chapter 13 of Luke. And he, go, he tells another story. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Uh, apparently, a tower f- fell over and killed 18 people. And Jesus, put, Jesus puts it back on those around him and asks, just because they died in this way, are they worse than you because you're still alive? And then Jesus answers his own question, as he so masterfully does, over and over again. He goes, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is saying, and I think Zephaniah is saying, you have time today. (laughs) You have time today to repent. It doesn't mean that the consequences of our actions go away. It doesn't mean that there isn't discipline needed in our lives by the Lord's sovereign will at work, but it is a call to repent. It is the mechanism God has covenantally designed to offer mercy to all those who fall short in holding up their end of the covenant. The great uh, reformer Martin Luther wrote in his first of 95 theses that sparked the Protestant Reformation, he says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, referencing Matthew 4 verse 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Did you catch that? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance isn't just a one-time thing. And it isn't just for unbelievers to repent of sin and come to Jesus and and call it good, although it is repenting of sin and coming to Jesus. But this is also a call to all who call themselves believers in Jesus, all who are partakers of the new covenant in Christ. There's a self-examination that we're called to. The book of 1 Peter is written to a church in exile, a church that's suffering, a church that's the minority in a majority pagan culture. And in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, as, as Peter's encouraging the church uh, in, their, in their struggling, in their uh, suffering, he says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Friends, if we truly desire revival, if we desire to see radical mercy and justice, if we want our life in the kingdom to look different than the world, if we want to be distinctly Christian in a world gone mad, then we need to start here here. We're called to repent, and in repentance, we take hold of God's mercy to us. See, if you have breath in your lungs today, you're being invited to repent, which simply means to turn away from or to to change one's mind, to turn away from sin, from idolatry, from worshiping other things. And this is something empowered by the Holy Spirit that we do every day. Day. Often our, our first inclination 
It seems easier to deal with external problems. We change the diet, we change the policy, we change the regulation, or we change the law. But lasting change, lasting, long-term change comes. The path that the Lord seems to work in order to bring about revival and renewal in his people comes by way of repentance. Friends, let's continue to pray and work toward the expansion of God's kingdom on earth and for revival in our midst. And to start, let's fall on our faces, honest before our King, and plead with the Holy Spirit to root out the remains of idols in our own lives, that we might be agents, examples of restoration because he's working revival here in us through repentance. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today, for the life and breath in our lungs today. Would you help us to to see it as an opportunity to walk in humility and repentance? To remember the words of 1 John, that you are faithful and just to forgive. So we don't need to hide. We can walk fully in the light, knowing that forgiveness and wholeness and healing is found in repentance because you are kind and merciful to your people. Would you work this kind of deep heart repentance and change in us? We pray that you bring revival in our own hearts and in our homes and in our midst. Start here with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.